You are listening to the Iran Election 1400 podcast, in the Khobati Iran Hazara Chorsad, brought to you by the Middle East Studies Forum at the Alfred Deakin Institute, Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Dr. James Barry, and on this week's show, Then There Were Four. It's election day, and Iran has been on a campaign blackout since 7am Thursday, Iran time. Before the blackout, three candidates announced their withdrawal. Reformist Mohsen Merali-Zadeh, who endorsed no one upon his resignation, but Hemati has claimed his supporters. Second is Ali Reza Zakhani, who was rumoured to have resigned on Monday night, only to deny it and resign again on Wednesday. And finally, Saeed Jalili, who, like Zakhani, directed his supporters to vote for Ibrahim Raisi. A fourth, Amir Hossein Qazizadeh Hashemi, was reported to have resigned by Fars News late on Wednesday night, only to have Qazizadeh's campaign team deny the news. So Qazizadeh remains alongside the favourite to win, Ibrahim Raisi, challenger Abdul Nasser Hemati, and election regular Mohsen Rezai. In this episode, we will discuss what these elections mean, considering they seem to be a foregone, preordained conclusion, as well as the prospects for a higher turnout leading to a Hemati victory and the latest audiophile leak scandal. Alongside me on the panel are Dr. Elham Naich from the University of New South Wales. Welcome, Elham. Hi. Dr. Nasser Qobadzadeh joins us as well, Senior Lecturer at the Australian Catholic University. Welcome, Nasser. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. And also Dr. Ali Mozafri, Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute, Deakin University. Welcome, Ali. Great to be here. Thanks. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Nassim Basiri of Oregon State University, who will talk about women in rural and regional Iran, whose voices are often not heard in the mostly Tehran-centric research and reporting, as well as the ongoing issues of gendered violence and the politicization of women in Iran. But first to the news of the week. I'd like to remind listeners that on our website, www.mesf.org.au, you can find a daily digest of news of the election, as well as information about candidates and the different arms of government. These are also available on our Twitter page at MESF underscore D-E-A-K-I-N, as well as our podcast Twitter page at IranVotes1400. But first to the week's events. The first part of the Iranian week was taken up with the third and last election debate on Saturday, where the candidates mostly chose to offer a more polished and cautious version of themselves. Most of what they were saying had already been said although the candidates did resort to scare tactics a little bit more than in previous debates. Hemati referred to his hardline colleagues as the cause of sanctions and said that with the election of Raisi or any of his covers, quote-unquote, Iran would not have sanctions relief, but rather further sanctions. Raisi's camp opted for discrediting Hemati by showing a distance between his promises and his actions as central bank governor, including his support for the petrol price rise in 2019, which led to violent protests. Nevertheless, the third debate was over as soon as it happened, and most candidates hit the campaign trail for rallies in different parts of the country, pushing the boundaries of COVID restrictions. Two issues overshadowed this week. Would the Conservative candidates recuse themselves in favour of Raisi as they had promised? And would the reformist movement pick a candidate? On the Conservative side, most candidates showed a reluctance to stand aside for Raisi, and considerable pressure was placed upon them to do so. Hossein Shariat Madari, the firebrand editor of Kehan, which is colloquially known as the voice of the Supreme Leader, said that failure to stand aside was tantamount to sin. In a slightly more measured way, Manucher Motaki, the head of the Unity Council, which is one of the coordinating bodies of conservative principalist factions in Iran, 
He also applied pressure by reminding the Conservative candidates of how their failure to stand aside for one of their own split the Conservative vote in 2013 and allowed Rouhani to become president. Motaki's words came amidst growing speculation that the challenger, Abdul Nasser Hemati, might have a chance to do a Rouhani and beat Raisi unexpectedly. A growing number of moderate and reformist voices were trying to direct disaffected Iranians, either implicitly or explicitly, towards Hemati, under the logic that a higher turnout might equal a Hemati victory. These voices included Ali Motahari, Faizeh Hashimi, Supreme Leader's brother, Hadi Khomeini, exiled religious intellectual, Abdul Karim Surush, and leader of the reform movement, former President Mohammad Khatami. But whether this thinking and the accompanying unsourced polls which seemed to support this theory had any merit or were merely a ruse to encourage Iranians to vote is unclear. Most conservatives, however, resisted standing aside for Raisi until the last minute. Mohsen Rezaei did not think he should be considered among those obliged to stand aside for Raisi, for example, either because he is partially on the outer of that group of principalists, or because he thinks that election day is just not the same without him. Ali Reza Zalkani was the first conservative candidate to stand aside, seemingly announcing on Monday night at a rally in Koshan that he intended to withdraw, only to withdraw his withdrawal shortly after. As it transpired, he did resign and directed his supporters to vote for Raisi, but he preferred a more auspicious location, an Imamzadeh or Holy Shrine in North Tehran, and a different day, Wednesday afternoon. Saeed Jalili, who is among, has among the most devoted following of all the candidates, also withdrew on Wednesday before the election blackout, remarking that since most of Iranian society wants Raisi, which is an interesting comment considering the vote hasn't happened yet, then so does he. Amir Hossein Qazizadeh Hashemi, however, has resisted resigning, telling reporters in no uncertain terms that he will be there on election day. Perhaps his apparent popularity in the polls as a relatively youthful conservative leader had something to do with his reluctance, but there is no question that some people in high positions resented his determination. Late on Wednesday evening, Forest News, which is an IRGC affiliate and an unashamed supporter of Raisi throughout this campaign, reported that Qazizadeh had stepped aside. Qazizadeh's campaign headquarters immediately released a statement saying it was lies and reported Faris to the Ministry of Interior. Where this report had come from was not clear, but it seemed to be a deliberate move to cause confusion about whether Qazizadeh was still in the race. This only compounded the situation for media in Iran, with reports in Radio Free Europe on the amount of intimidation of reporters for merely presenting Raisi in anything less than a favourable light. On Tuesday, editors of the mostly reformist-affiliated media gathered for a meeting with Ibrahim Raisi in which they one by one praised the candidate and were ominously reminded by the Chief Justice himself that he had never banned a publication. Other reformists debated whether to back a candidate and their only horse in this race, Mohsen Mer Alizadeh, became the first to resign. This was interpreted as an endorsement for Hemati, although Mer Alizadeh made no statement to that effect. Hemati would probably not have minded though, as other reformists have already endorsed him, and the small supporter base that Mer Alizadeh was able to gather, let's not forget that he spoke to a nearly empty auditorium in Tabriz in his native Azerbaijan on Sunday, probably would not make much of a difference to his vote anyway. So it seems that even as a challenger, Hemati does not stand much of a chance.
Well, now that we've reached election day, obviously the most important question is not who will win, but by what will Raisi be like as president? And does this change anything for Iran? James, what meaning do you think can possibly come from an election like this? Well, everyone has been talking about how the election itself has less meaning than it normally does when it comes to Iran. And uh, in this case, it leads to another question of what's going to happen over the next few years. Now, on Wednesday night, the Supreme Leader gave a talk where he talked about, uh, he gave a speech where he talked about the election and he made the comment that you should vote because unlike Saudi Arabia, we have proper elections and uh, you uh, have a ballot box in Iran. And in Saudi Arabia, they don't know what a ballot box is. They only, uh, they can't tell a ballot box from a fruit box. Um, and that's a very cynical statement to say because it, it, we, we're facing a situation where people are more and more um, disillusioned with the electoral process to say, well, at least you're not Saudi Arabia is probably not the most comforting thing to say. Now, uh, uh, the Supreme Leader, to his credit, laughed at his own joke, which um, makes sense because, I mean, I like to laugh at my own jokes as well, but that is a worrying sign. Now, in terms of uh, the whole idea of election fraud. Now, a lot of people have been saying that this is preordained, that Raisi was always going to win. We don't know that yet, but of course, uh, it seems to be heading that way. And the media in Iran and a lot of the pressure in Iran seems to be towards that. We've seen that this week when uh, the pressure on conservative candidates to resign has been quite strong and sometimes vitriolic when it came to people like Shariat Madari putting pressure on the other conservative candidates. But uh, to call it a fraudulent election at, at the start is is kind of funny in the Iranian sense because Iran is not Syria. Uh, I mean, anyone who was coming in to study Iran from the beginning, the first year surprised that they have a fairly election or open election system as opposed to other countries. Um, there is less of that this time, of course, but now that the term election fraud has been taken over by Trump and, uh, well, and this week it was also Benjamin Netanyahu saying that he was the victim of a fraudulent election, two months after the election had happened, it's the first time he mentioned it, uh, that it seems to have lost its point. So what is the point of uh, this election? Um, look, I know there are more important questions to answer other than who will win and, uh, and why Raisi, but uh, essentially what we're looking at is something that Alim Saleh talked about last week on the show, which was we're looking at the, the existing system, the, the central government, the Politburo, the Security Council, the Supreme Leader, setting up the next eight years for a transition by the looks of it, uh, a transition where they expect uh, the Supreme Leader might pass away and they're trying to set the system up for what would happen after the Supreme Leader passes away. Now, whether Raisi is being set up as the next Supreme Leader, and he certainly behaves a lot like the current Supreme Leader, Khamenei, in the, the way that he tries to keep a distance from politics, in a great deal, is something we'll find out over the next few years. But I, I, I in my own reading, I think that the issue is um, is that it's we're looking at what Iran is going to be like over the next eight years. Well, because let's be honest, I don't think if Raisi gets in, he will lose in four years. Of course, anything can happen in Iran, but just going on what's previously happened. So, in short, this election is important. And the outcome of this election, even if it's preordained, is important because we're getting an idea about what Iran wants for its future, what Iran, what Khamenei wants for the legacy, for the continuation of the Islamic Republic uh, after he passes away. Yes, uh, Bob, I agree with uh, Alham that uh, 
it seems uh, too late for any kind of surprise uh, uh, in this election. But uh, still, it's important question to ask at what uh, this election means if it goes as it is uh, planned or uh, it is engineered as uh, to use a, a popular concept in Iran's political lexicon nowadays. Uh, I think the election is uh, again polarized, uh, but not in terms of between candidates and, uh, and between those who have, uh, but not between candidates, but between those who have boycotted elections, which is uh, not, of course, a, a new phenomenon, but this time, uh, as we know, it includes uh, a wide range of uh, political groups and individuals. For example, uh, People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran, uh, Mujahideen Khalq, and uh, monarchist parties on the one end of the spectrum are a part of this campaign to boycott the election. And people like Mirhosei Musavi and Ahmadinejad could be categorized as a part of this uh, boycott uh, campaign. And the other side is obviously uh, conservatives and some streams of reformists, of course, and their aims is uh, totally different. Conservatives has a very clear uh, agenda in this election. So uh, the question is what these political camps uh, expect to gain from this election and uh, who, is who is going actually to get what they are trying uh, to achieve. Uh, let me first uh, start with the, uh, I think, easiest part, which is those reformists such as uh, Mohammad Khatami, the, the, the former president, uh, Hassan Khomeini Surush, and a few political parties, reformist political parties, who have explicitly or implicitly supported Hemmeti uh, and are apparently going to, to vote for, for him. Uh, like many other elections, I believe that their intention is more of a, a rejectionist nature. What I mean by that is uh, they are not necessarily supporting Hemeti. They are trying to prevent racist victory. And this is uh, uh, clear even in the messages that, uh, uh, and to a large extent, it is clear uh, even in Hemeti's campaign, who insists a lot on the danger of uh, Raisi becoming the next president. So the question is, are they going to get what they want? And as we said, it seems that they need a sort of miracle in the remaining time uh, to get uh, this, to, to prevent Raisi from becoming the, the next president. Uh, the second group are conservatives for whom I believe the simple and the ultimate goal is to have a safe and uh, secure victory in the in the elections, and you will agree with me that the, uh, that every uh, thing is set perfectly uh, till now for for this to happen. And when Larry Jani was rejected, uh, it was clear that they don't want to to take any risk, and I think they have managed uh, uh, the situation well so far. And it seems that they are going to uh, actually get what they, they were uh, aimed from the beginning of this campaign. And of course, uh, they have paid, I believe, high prices for this, mostly reputational prices. Uh, but one uh, would uh, say that they uh, are counting on the turnout rate. Khamenei's uh, statement uh, yesterday was uh, important, uh, uh, particularly 
the part that he called for the high turnout and explicitly he linked the, the participation rate to the uh, support of the political system. And this is uh, different from what he said in 2000 election uh, when he said that, that he asked everybody to participate in the election back then, even if they don't believe in the, uh, in the political system. Uh, I have the feeling that Khamenei and conservatives are confident that there will be a sort of a good turnout. This could be because of the election for the city and village councils, which is happening at the same day. And many people, I believe it, in particularly in villages and small cities uh, are going to participate because of their local councils, even if not because of the presidential election. So I think Khamenei's statement might be read as a challenge against the opposition, which calls for the election boycott. And uh, this uh, is the, the kind of polarization that I, was, I, I just mentioned, which I think has been uh, formed. And it seems that both sides, I mean, uh, election boycott camp and conservatives are in favor of this uh, polarization. And it seems that the election boycott camp plays uh, or is, is in a way gambling on the turnout rate. And I think their hope is that, uh, that there will be a very low turnout rate. And with that number, uh, they will be able to play uh, and, and, uh, and challenge the legitimacy uh, uh, and the support uh, 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 of the regime among the, the people. And, and, and I mean, to wrap it up, if you ask me which one is going to get what they wish for, uh, unfortunately, I'm not very optimistic. I think that the conservatives will get whatever they want, which is first securing the executive office for the next four or even eight years. Uh, don't forget that that's the pattern uh, that has been the pattern so far. And the second to continue claiming that the regime is a democratic and uh, is legitimate because of the turnout rate. And I think that they will get uh, the minimum number to, to make that, that as, as such a claim. And I will be very surprised if the election boycott campaign manages to get an ideal figure uh, with regard to the turnout rate. And, and that the final point that, sorry, that it became too long uh, that I, I like to make is that even if they have the number, I mean, the opposition, the boycott camp, camp have the number, I don't know how it's going to, it's going to help. Uh, last parliamentary elections uh, marked the lowest participation rate. As far as I remember, it was 25% in Tehran, for example, but I don't know how it has helped the opposition so far. And there's the same question about this election, even if the turnout rate is very, very low. Uh, so like, about the turnout, I just wanted to say that first, we know definitely that uh, there is this manipulation of the turnouts, but also the regime with the COVID thing happening, which is like so widespread, the regime can easily justify a low turnout, even if people, and there aren't many people and there isn't like long queues for voting, the regime can easily blame the COVID and like people are observing the social distancing and whatever. So like, I, I don't really think the regime is gonna be worried about the turnouts if they are, if it is gonna be low. Though so you would add that one of the dangers is they can't um, pretend that the turnout was higher because people are wearing masks. And this is something that's been talked about for the last few months that there's a whole speculation and we're talking about Iran here. So people are never hundred percent sure. 
that uh, when they have elections, sometimes they exaggerate the numbers anyway. And I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying this is what people talk about. And with an election where people are wearing masks, they can't put up photos from previous elections and say, these are the cues from today's elections. Look how long they are. They can't do that in the newspapers. So that is one of the risks they're taking. I agree with parts of the uh, points that was raised uh, by yourself and the previous speakers. I especially agree with uh, Nasser's observation on the content and meaning of uh, Khamenei's uh, latest speech. But let me tackle uh, part of the embedded question within what Elham said, which is, does anything change? I think the question is, what do you seek to change? Uh, this is, uh, let me go on a small uh, archaeological expedition here. Uh, this is a historical reminder, this election, of when Khatemi came to power. And I remember it vividly as I was uh, of the age of voting, well past that. Uh, in that election, the rise of Khatemi was a surprise and the popular reaction was unpredictable. It was actually genuine, uh, I believe. Uh, at the time, uh, the competitor was Nader Nouri, who had the endorsement of, of uh, Khamenei and one faction of the establishment. Um, and uh, I remember since Botox was not as yet popular among the Islamic Republic politicians, Nader Nouri changed his glasses into a slightly more stylish frame. Uh, the surprise turnout uh, changed the outcome. But in the long run, the people were left out again. And what happened was the redistribution of state rents among members and affiliates of this new faction, which was later known as reformists, partly perhaps by accident. Uh, the most famous theory, let me remind our listeners, of the so-called reform movement uh, was articulated uh, by, among others, uh, by uh, Said Hajarian, a founder of Iran's notorious security forces and a former security henchman himself, who's turned journalist and political theorist. And the theory was that to rally popular, uh, uh, to, to do, to get what you want, you rally popular pressure from below in order to engage in bargaining from the top, meaning the powers. Uh, now, toward what, you may ask? Uh, 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 well, the, the answer is toward redistribution of resources and assumption of power by this certain faction. Uh, in this paternalistic, and in my opinion, infantilizing view, the people are seen as a raw material for manipulation, uh, like a mass uh, who temporarily assume the color of citizens. That temporary time is the time of voting, just like now. Uh, so we have a usurpation of, of terms here and, and the meanings of those terms, like political parties uh, that are only insider factions and uh, uh, a very uh, faint semblances of democracy and governance that uh, is shown here. Uh, in this light, uh, commentaries that talk about hardliners, technocrats, centrist, I mean, uh, somebody called, uh, has been calling him Matthias centrist, it's rather laughable. I don't know, does that mean Christian Democrat or something? Uh, even reformist, as if these are genuine alternative political tendencies are perhaps misleading because they misrecognize internal factions and their rhetoric for genuine political parties. So what is going to change? That's the question. Although it seems unlikely at this moment, people may still go to the polls in large numbers, but as, as was probably alluded to, uh, but um, I think the picture remains bleak. The fundamental and systemic problems that stem from the very configuration of state and rule within the Islamic Republic 
still remain in place no matter who gets into that uh, seat of presidential election. Uh, structural economic problems, rampant state and official corruption, ecological and environmental disasters, unaccountability, uh, limitations on individual freedoms, intolerance for dissent, uh, and an increasing promotion of ethnic divisions and tribalism, all of which have eroded the basis of the nation state thus far are likely to continue unimpeded. The biggest question that we should be asking here concerns the nature of sovereignty. Is that going to change? Well, I think that is highly unlikely. Thank you so much, James, Nasser, and Ali. Um, another important event which happened this week was like similar to Zarif Gate in April, another controversial audio file was leaked. On the recording was former Ahmadinejad era intelligence minister, Haydar Muslehi, who said that the Guardian Council disqualified Rafsanjani in 2013 in order to preserve the Nizam, meaning the regime or system. The claims in the audio file were of course denied by the Guardian Council. No, sir, what, 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 what is your thought on this? Does mostly his claim reflect on how this election has panned out? And is this election and the disqualifications we see also about protecting the system? Uh, well, I think uh, mostly his uh, statement, or if we can call it a scandal, is very important. And it tells a lot about the, the wetting processes. And uh, most important among them is uh, the fact that uh, the final decision uh, in the voting process is not based on the qualifications of the candidates, which uh, was literally what they claimed so far. Uh, but even the candidates' chance to win the election uh, seems to matter for the Guardian Council. And this was somehow obvious when the Larijani uh, was disqualified at the beginning of this, this, this race. And it was already, uh, in a way, an open uh, secret uh, that uh, he was disqualified only because he could uh, polarize the election and uh, jeopardize races uh, victory. Uh, what difference mostly his statement makes is that it is now officially uh, recorded and said, although the Guardian Council uh, somewhat denied it. Uh, the irony is that uh, apparently uh, the, the head of the Expediency Council, Raf Sanjani, uh, was the head of the Expediency Council back then, was disqualified because uh, his victory was assessed to be against the expediency of the, uh, of the system. Uh, another point that I really like to raise about this, uh, this uh, mostly his statement is that we could also read this news in line with the other news that we had last week. Uh, what I'm referring is to Khamenei's statement about disqualifying uh, of Larijani. Uh, these two news uh, somewhat imply that Ayatollah Khamenei is not directly engaged in the vetting processes. And it is actually the Guardian Council that is in charge of making the final decision. Uh, honestly, I'm very surprised and uh, I still don't believe that the Supreme Leader doesn't directly engage in such an important decision, which, as he uh, correctly said yesterday, uh, determined the fate of the country for at least four years or if not, not uh, eight years. And I think that's very important uh, for the Supreme Leader. And uh, as I said, I'm surprised that he's not directly engaged in the veteran processes. Yes, I, I agree with uh, with Nasser. It reminded me that uh, that when 
towards the end of the Shah's period, there were those who were somewhat sympathetic to, to the Shah. They used to say that actually the Shah himself is okay. It's those who are around him that are no good. Now, I'm not judging one way or another whether the Shah is okay or not. I'm just making the comparison here. It sounds that way uh, with regard to Khamenei. And it seems that Mosley also kind of embarrassed himself and may have actually uh, tarnished his uh, prospects for advancement within the existing system. Now, uh, the, the question to answer again here, I would like to tackle it from another perspective. Uh, I think uh, for most familiar with Iran, uh, they would know uh, that saving the system is, as they call it, meaning the utmost important issue or the most important of the importance. Um, uh, from Khatami to Khamenei, they've all said that one way or another, regardless of their factional infightings. Uh, therefore, the members of all factions uh, uh, will approach uh, the system in this perspective, although their approach may vary, but the idea is to keep it. But the question is, uh, uh, why is this of utmost importance? Well, uh, who does the system serve? Uh, change of factions can change the fortunes of beneficiaries of those factions, of course. Uh, some strategic consultant in this country or some oil go-between in another country in Europe, for example, or some academic advocate or some journalist activist. We have a lot of people with different tendencies, political or different links. But um, what about the actual people who have to be served by a system or if they're not served, the system has to change. Where do the people figure in this system? And uh, that has to be retained at all costs. Do any of these candidates or their affiliates uh, that we have, the, the remaining four, speak of, of the, for example, illegal downing of the Ukrainian passenger jet? Are they going to do anything about it? Or, or about the political prisoners, including the most peaceful activists, such as uh, I, I can name one, Gitipu Fazel, who's in her 80s, and along with 13 others, signed an open letter uh, requesting the Supreme Leader step aside, uh, and, and they're serving prison sentences. I don't think so. Uh, since we're not looking at genuine elections, uh, we need to note the function of polls for the Islamic Republic. In my mind, it is uh, the polling is little more than presenting an internationally legitimate picture of a system that suffers from uh, a, a domestic legitimacy deficit. I think it points out that elections are, oddly enough, a tool for prolonging what is in essence a mixture of kleptocracy, kakistocracy, and roughly a mafia state, one could say. Um, look, with the uh, downing of the Ukraine passenger plane and the political process, I mean, that probably fed in pro quite strongly to the low turnout in the last election. Um, with In this case, I think that one of the issues that uh, NASA picked up on, which is quite interesting, is the idea that Khamenei might not be involved in the vetting process. Uh, from my perspective, and this is probably due to my own uh, academic prejudice, I find it hard to believe that he's not. I, and this is part of the whole myth of the Supreme Leader that's being built over the years. It's probably, if anything, it could be hoodwinking me or convincing me that he's always involved in, any, in everything. Now, I'm not saying that he's behind it all, but at the same time, I find it hard to believe that uh, he wouldn't do something like get Larajani out of the way. He's going to mess up our plans. Uh, let's disqualify him. And then uh, do the exact opposite when he speaks and says, uh, well, Larajani shouldn't have been um, disqualified in the first place. I just find that to be uh, how I would see it. I'm, I'm sure that there are others who disagree with me. Um, it's interesting that uh, on Wednesday, Motahari made this comment that people should vote for uh, not Hemati because um, 
amongst many other things, not only will they save the fact that they have elections or keep elections as free as possible as they can be in Iran, but also that they can change the makeup of the Guardian Council. So a lot is being put on the Guardian Council as the cause of disqualifying of candidates and allowing of uh, the situation to be unfree elections. So that's an interesting sort of change in the in the, um, well, I mean, people have always talked about it, like why was Raf Sanjani um, uh, disqualified in 2013? Um, everyone knew it wasn't because of his, of his age, which was the reason given at the time, because he was younger or no, basically the same age, sorry, as Khomeini. So doesn't doesn't didn't make sense at the time. So everyone knew what was going on. Um, again, this is the same sort of thing. So I don't, I'm not saying that Khomeini would make the decision and everyone would follow. I'm saying that he's definitely part of the consultation process from my point of view, and that uh, this putting pressure on the Guardian Council, to me, again, and this is not conspiratorial, I'm just saying, it makes me think that uh, the actual issue is not the Guardian Council. Anyway, that's just where I'm coming from. In recent days, some dubious polls have said that if there is a decent turnout above 57%, for example, then Hemati could win. Ali, in your opinion, are these polls a tactic to get people to vote? And uh, what can be said of those political factions, including apparent regime opponents, who have realigned themselves to support Hemati? I think uh, every faction within the Islamic Republic will do its best uh, to, to involve as many people as possible. Of course, those who believe in this. I think Nasser partly addressed this question in, in, in his era earlier conversation. Um, uh, if we look at Hemati, uh, he's part of the system and uh, he's not uh, in a position out of the blue, like as Rohani said, uh, Hemati and none of those people sitting there came from Mars. That's what he actually said angrily, I might add. Um, they're all member of the system, uh, as Khatami and Rafsanjani and uh, Rafsanjani's daughter and Raisi are. So just we're looking at factional differences here. Uh, in my opinion, uh, the realignment of political factions draws a very clear line in the sand. Uh, those who are with the people and those who claim to be with the people and speak on their behalf, but pursue personal or factional gains or both uh, within the Islamic Republic. It is in this context that the boycott move that Nasser was just referring to it uh, earlier uh, uh, makes uh, a kind of a sense because uh, uh, first of all that move by all indications seems to have originated from within Iran and of course the opposition overseas also took it up as well um, and it seems to have some following although we never know how many how much how big uh, uh, it, but what it does uh, if we it, it may be big I might add because of uh, the few videos that we have anecdotally seen people in open mics in streets here and there bravely uh, speaking. Um, but uh, what it does, it proposes an alternative agency uh, on the part of people, this boycott thing, uh, who it appears may no longer be the willing, reactive participants in a political system that has treated them so far as citizens only in passing. 
by the poll times, basically. Uh, and yet the, the debate over who wins, uh, who wants to work uh, with which faction and what faction supports which candidates, uh, it seems to me are a distraction from a major set of questions that go to the heart of legitimacy and the existential justification of the Islamic Republic. Uh, we have, I mean, uh, whether Raisi becomes the head or, 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 or Hemmati or Rezai, very unlikely, is it's neither here nor there in that bigger picture. Here we have a genuine set of crises, uh, largely the product of, of the system itself. Uh, we have territorial, I mentioned, environmental, ecological, economical, strategic issues that are lo looming large. And, and uh, they may uh, actually threaten uh, the very existence of the nation state as we know it today. In that big picture, in that lens, uh, it's really whether it's Raisi or Hemmati is besides the point and nothing much can change. Uh, the current runners, all of them, uh, have given no indication, unfortunately, that they have the slightest understanding of the severity of these problems uh, or the will to contemplate them, let alone the propositions towards a solution. I know there were people who were talking about having thousands and thousands of pages of programs, but frankly, they, there was no indication of that expertise or capacity there. Uh, what is there besides vote begging going on by these people, uh, be that the dropouts or the ones who continue? I think this appears to be uh, uh, the continuation of more of the same. And we can see that uh, once again in, in what Khamenei said, which was earlier discussed very nicely and, and clearly by, by, by uh, Nasser. Uh, this is in itself an indication of the fact that not only is any meaningful and likely, and, and we've said this before in, in the previous sessions, but that any such change is perhaps not even on the agenda. And this reminds me of two things. Uh, number one is that there is an ever increasing gap between uh, this group, which we can loosely refer to as the state of the Islamic Republic. And here I include the lot with the minutiae factions and the people of Iran. So we've got these two sides really. And, uh, and here is where we see the question of national interest arise. Again, a question that is never addressed properly. And the second element is that there is a disconnect uh, between that so-called state and the realities on the ground, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 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 as experienced by Iranians and the causes behind them. Uh, just uh, bear in mind that in this week, uh, we have witnessed reports of clashes over water crises. Like these are real issues that are happening uh, in Isfahan, in south of Iran. So that's in that sense, it's universal suffrage for everyone. Uh, th there's no, there's no concern apparently. There's no solution to that. And these are the problems that are experienced. But we're talking something else at the state level. Um you know, one of the things that always comes up uh, when we, we're talking about uh, electoral participation, that's going to be a low turnout. And I, I know that on our Twitter account, we've been copying a little bit of abuse from uh, people who say that we're a bit seditious and, and pro-election boycott, which we're, uh, well, completely um, uh, neutral on this. It reminds me of 2009. And after the 2009 election, this uh, slogan of Rayman Kujost, where is my vote? Uh, this question has come up again and again um, over the years. And for me, when we're talking about election boycotts, not even boycotts, people not wanting to participate. Uh, for me, as an observer, an outsider, and a non-Iranian, um, 
I don't get the feeling that Iranians don't want to vote. I think that actually many people from the educated classes to those who uh, who uh, not have not gone to tertiary uh, education, it's um it, it's important for them to be able to vote. It's just they don't see uh, that many people don't see a point this time, and they don't see a point in risking their their the lives of their families going out to vote because of COVID. Um, one of the things that always comes up, and this is something I noticed in 2013 uh, with uh, the lead up to Rouhani's election, and I've noticed it again today. When the senior figures in the government, like Khamenei, like members of the Guardian Council, like uh, Hassan Khomeini or others who are not part of the government, but definitely a part of the establishment, when they want people to vote, the thing that they appeal to is nationalism. Uh, there's an appeal of, okay, you don't like the government, fair enough. But if you don't vote, you're helping the enemies of Iran. You're helping Israel, you're helping the United States and others. Uh, and so if you vote, you're voting for Iran. You're not necessarily voting for the Islamic Republic. And there has been that again from uh, Mohammad Javad Zarif, the comments that he made the other day, and from others, that the importance of voting is not so much about uh, being able to vote um, for a particular candidate, but for vote for a vote is for a vote for Iran, which has always been the case since the beginning of the uh, Islamic Republic. It used to be that you were voting for the Islamic Republic against the monarchy. At least I know Sherin Abadi in her... Um, Shireen Ebody in her memoir talks about this, that people felt they were voting against the monarchy in the early years. So it's always been a, a strategy. Um, but I, I think I'm not sure how much this time it's going to work, given the circumstances. One of the things that's different about 2013, of course, was there wasn't the issue with Western countries in the same way with Europe and the United States. The tensions that Ahmadinejad caused between Iran and the West uh, now seem like a lifetime away. So when Rouhani was elected, it was almost like a vote for a candidate that would um, uh, that would be amenable to the West, to the point where it was almost like if that election was engineered, it was because the uh, the central authority in the Islamic Republic wanted uh, to have a more amenable candidate uh, to win uh, who would be able to talk to the West. Hemati doesn't have that. Hemati, or he might have had that in 2013, but he doesn't now. It's almost like he was a deliberate choice because of his role as central governor or the governor of the cent, uh, of the central bank of Iran, uh, that he's, he's so um, tainted in terms of, uh, well, at least economically, that he can't convince people that he's the right person. Rouhani came in, even though he was definitely a central security establishment figure, people didn't really know him. And so they got to know him through the uh, election documentaries. With Hamati, it's a little bit different. He's a deliberate choice. They could have chosen somebody else. And you see this again, like, the candidates who were possibly able to, to be a balance against the Raisi. Lali Johnny, we've talked about Hassan Khomeini was told by the Supreme Leader himself not to run or asked not to run, which is basically an order. Uh, and Mohammad Javadi Zarif, who'd always said he wouldn't run, but everyone expected that he wouldn't be a main challenger to the Raisi, uh, had the audio file leaked. Uh, and um, so in, in that sense, uh, yeah, it, it's a case that there is a, a movement towards a, a settling of a certain candidate who will serve the next eight years uh, for what the, the central authority of the Islamic Republic wants. It's not 2013, so we can't put hopes in, or no one can put hopes in, sorry, into someone like Hemati. I, I agree with, uh, with you, James. And I think, uh, I don't know, unfortunately, I'm not living in Iran, but the feeling that I'm getting is that it's not that people doesn't want to vote. If they have a, a choice, still there is a chance that they will and i'm i'm uh, i'm afraid to say that this 
uh, boycott campaign, this might be a bit different from uh, what Ali was earlier saying about that, uh, uh, how this could uh, this could be a form of resistance or the form of uh, action, a political action. Uh, I see it, I mean, I understand, totally understand boycott campaign as at the individual personal level because of, I mean, saying that I'm not going to be a part of this uh, ridiculous or even humiliating uh, game because over and over again, uh, they make promises and we, uh, we are happy to get the minimum of what we deserve, but still we are deprived of that basics, that minimum. I totally understand at the personal level of this is satisfactory, but as a collective, as a political action, I don't see how it could lead to a, a sort of, uh, I mean, a tangible outcome in the political uh, context. And I think this uh, alliance that Elham was mentioning earlier of the, some individuals and some political parties with Hemeti uh, tells us about the serious impasses in the Iranian politics. Uh, the reality is that there is uh, no alternative. And unfortunately, all these years, uh, opposition groups have not been able to offer a viable option. And at the end of the day, uh, all uh, promising or if, if not constructive episodes uh, in Iranian politics has emerged uh, from the elections. And the discourse which promotes uh, election boycott uh, doesn't offer any alternative. And it, it is somewhat uh, very obvious that nothing will come out of this, uh, the, the election boycott. And I reckon this, this compels uh, some to support Hemeti only to prevent uh, Raisi's victory with the hope of uh, uh, preventing it. And uh, we should not forget that even uh, the previous elections like Rouhani's and even Khatami's a victory was an outcome of a sort of a resistance, a sort of saying no to the political system. And I think that sentiment is very still strong in, 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 in Iran. And if there is a chance through the election, through the other channels, it will come up again, uh, no matter when and how. Uh, you're listening to the Iran Election 1400 podcast, brought to you by the Middle East Studies Forum at the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. We're going to take a short break now and we'll be back with Nassim Basiri of the Oregon State University to talk more about women in regional Iran as well as gendered violence. Nassim Masiri is an Iranian poet and activist from Borazjan in the south of Iran. She currently lives in the United States where she works and studies at Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Oregon State University. Nassim recently passed her YY exam for her dissertation as she, and she's almost about to finish her PhD. Actually, she's doing two PhDs at the moment. So congratulations, Nassim. This is really a tough job. It is great to have you today with us. Hi, Elham. Thank you so much for having me here. And um, yeah, I'm almost done. So it's not it's not Viva here in the US. It's like oral exam defense. <laughs> but I'm done with my other PhD in Romania and I'm waiting to defend. That's great. That's great to hear that. Uh, so uh, Nassim John, um, 
a criticism that often arises in discussions about women in Iran is that the image of women in Iran is limited to women in Tehran. And the situation for women in regional and rural areas is completely ignored. And we know that Iran is a really big country. As a woman from Brazjan in the south of Iran, could you talk a little bit about how the circumstances of women in provincial Iran differs from that of the capital? And what is missed in the Tehran-centric discussions about Iranian women's rights and freedoms? Um, thank you so much, Elham. Actually, it's a very good question because I think I am the first woman from <laughs> Boucher province or from Borajan to be interviewed in the West uh, about this very important uh, question, which is an unfortunate, I mean, but I'm really happy that finally um, you reached out and you were willing to hear the story and the history of women living in Boucher province and especially in Borazjan. The women in Borazjan definitely had a very different life. I mean, Iran is a very diverse country and uh, every province itself has its own unique culture. Uh, unique, uh, uh, you know, unique way of life, of course, which is not uh, fully or uh, represented in the in the narratives and the history that is being written in Iran and also in the West. So uh, I was born in uh, Borazjan and I was raised and grew up by, uh, you know, parents that my father was a political prisoner. He was uh, in prison for five years um, at the age of 18 when he was very young and a mother that lost her brother because of the executions in the beginning of the revolution. So, uh, <clears throat> and this is the first time that I am talking about it in public and I'm very thankful that you invited me here today. So these people, th those who were killed or who, those who were imprisoned, their uh, stories and <laughs> the story of their imprisonment, their executions and hanging never got into the media, national media in Iran and not in the West. And that particularly, you know, that, that story shows that how people from the south of Iran are being marginalized, and uh, not just in Iran itself, but also in the West. So when I went to the West uh, as a student, I was really shocked by seeing the scholarship and the knowledge that is being produced in the West by Iranian scholars and um, the way that they were talking about Iranian women, it was like an overgeneralization of Iranian women. And I felt like that we don't have a you know, part in those, the history that has been produced for maybe centuries in the scholarship and also in post-revolutionary Iran. So what does it mean when the, the story of uh, people, all people from this particular place in Iran is being marginalized. And that's also before the revolution, not just after the revolution. And after the revolution, horrible, horrible things happened in that particular place uh, in the south of Iran, and nobody got to know about it. It's been 14 years that, uh, you know, crimes against humanity, and uh, murders, uh, political violence is going on, and also cultural violence against women. So if the whole people of a 
um, of a province are being marginalized. That means that women are being horribly uh, silenced and marginalized in those uh, towns, in those uh, small um, provinces in Iran. So yes, we, uh, I grew up in that city, in that town, and, and uh, I, as a person, as a girl, I experienced experience so much violence, and I'm, I'm not shy to talk about it. I actually talk about it everywhere, uh, wherever I go, and I say to people because I think it's very important to create or make awareness about gender violence, no matter where, where but uh, as you know, us as humans, we need to do that. Uh, uh, so gender violence is a very pervasive thing in the south of Iran, and it continues until now. It has been going on for centuries. Like in Borazjan, we have honor killings that is still going on. Nobody talks about it, not in the media, and, and not the law, the discriminatory law that uh, has been uh, established or uh, after the revolution actually does not uh, support these women the, who are the victims of honor killing in the south of Iran, like places like Boucher province or Baluchistan or Khuzestan or even uh, Hormozgan. So, uh, that was one of my worries since I was a kid because I was witnessing all this, you know, gender violence, like not just against women, but also against LGBTQ people uh, in the South and particularly in my town, in my, uh, uh, in my town, Borazjan, I think it's very important to talk about our towns because as a scholars and as researchers, we can bring a unique history that is not being touched by any historians or any um, you know, scientists in Iran and in the West just because, uh, you know, because of the politics. I know this is really hard to talk about gender violence. And I know that uh, your research, part of your research has focuses on the depiction of gendered violence in Iranian film and literature. Uh, could you tell us a bit how gendered violence uh, appear, I mean, is approached in Iran and Iranian studies and how this aspect of society is reflected in film and literature, please. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Elham. So um, this is a very good question. I, um, first of all, I should say that why I did this research, I think what inspired me to do this kind of research on gender violence in Iran, which maybe kind of uh, is new, uh, but the, the history and the, 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 the stories of the people that uh, I witnessed that they were erased, they were being uh, like taken away. Sometimes we don't know, you know, where they are even after so many decades. Those people and those women, they inspired me uh, since I was a child, uh, and I was always, you know, kind of looking for their works, and and I knew English. That was actually a very good thing because then I found out that some of these, you know, women prisoners in Iran, or you know, those who were being already in prison, they live in uh, Dias in exile now. And uh, somebody told me that they also are producing you know, uh, literature there. And it's being, pub 
publish. And, you know, years ago, it was uh, not something very common. I know that now, you know, because of the advancement of technology, uh, people get, you know, more books, more uh, resources on political violence in Iran, uh, but it was not the case before. So I knew English since I was a kid because of my father, because he learned English in prison from the professors who were also in prison with my father there. Uh, and he wanted me to learn English. He told me that you don't have a future here because of the way you think, because of the things that you saw. So you better learn English. And I learned English and that actually opened a lot of uh, doors and opportunities to me. It's a kind of exceptional thing for a woman from that town, from Borazhan, to um, pursue their higher education or going abroad to study alone. And uh, I'm kind of very thankful to my family and especially my father for being so open-minded and you know supporting me in my education in literature and and uh in everything so uh yeah those people uh inspired me and that's the only reason i am doing re this research because when you come to the west uh people start telling you that you're telling lies or they say, oh my God, what is this horror? Are you uh, hallucinated? Uh, we get these kind of reactions in the West. And then I was very curious to know what is the reason behind this? This is a very strange, it was a very strange thing for me. I said that even in, in that a small town, people knew what happened to my family and actually to so many families that they were from very poor, very marginalized, um, uh, uh, you know, families. And Borazhan is uh, has a clan system. It's not like any. <laughs> it's not like like the big cities or like the major cities in Iran. It has a clan system. That means that uh, everybody's you know each other's relative. Everybody's each other's friends. And what happened uh, in the beginning uh, you know in the, in the you know first years of the revolution was that the islamic republic uh made people fight each other even in these very small towns their relatives their relatives you know their friends and they go after each other and they imprison each other and they kill each other we all still know who they are but we decided to live with them because they are also the victims of that, you know, uh, sick system that victimizes the poor people and makes them go after each other. Uh, so I am mostly, I'm not, I'm not really interested to talk about uh, how gender violence uh, is, you know, depicted in literature right now, because this is something that I will do in the future after I'm done with my dissertation. But what I'm interested to talk about uh, is that I want to I want people uh, to know, especially in the West, that why a scholar, a female scholar from Iran, goes to the West and uh, decides to write about gender violence in Iran and gender violence in Iranian film and literature. 
So we all have our genealogies. And when I joined women's studies at Oregon State University, I found that that all the people who were, you know, in my cohort or classmates, they were kind of coming from so much trauma. I mean, why you should uh, leave your country, leave your family and go to the West that doesn't accept you, that doesn't respect you as an Iranian woman that is not uh, like the state so-called feminists that call themselves a state feminist. Uh, you are different and you're not accepted. You are a part of that, that society and you're not accepted. Then I did a research and I found out that, oh my God, <laughs> we are really being so isolated even here, even in the West. So people are being isolated in the West, but the government is not isolated in the West. Actually, those women who work with the state, they're everywhere in the West. They're in different departments and they go after women from Iran that are very rare. I don't know how many Iranian women can get a chance to come to the United States and or anywhere in the West to study women's stuff, which is very, very important. In the beginning, you know, people were kind of making fun of me that why uh, are you gonna study women's studies? They fail to understand that uh, I'm doing that for a reason. I did my first PhD in sociology. I, I did a um, you know, degree in human genocide studies and then in uh, education, literature, linguistics, all of this. So I am not only that women's studies, but now I'm so proud of doing that. Uh, Degree, and I really suggest that to all Iranian women to think about it. Like women's studies is not uh, is not just about women. It's about uh, learning how to fight against any kinds of you know systems of oppression and injustices that is going on in the world and uh, globally. So, but my experience in the West was was not uh, really good when I was in Europe or I was in the United States and even Canada. So uh, there were a lot of people coming to me and say, wow, Nassim, why do you want to do this research? This causes war. <laughs> this causes war. I said, what? You know, as a woman from uh, the south of Iran, being in that clan system, nobody told me that you are gonna be an advocate of war. Everybody appreciated what I was doing. You know, there was a time that there was violence, there was uh, executions, but things, you know, slowly changed and people realized that this government uh, does not actually uh, empathize or tolerates anyone. Even I uh, saw that, you know, our relatives or some of our friends who were, you know, they were forced to, co co you know, collaborate and cooperate with the government, not with the with the capital, of course, but with uh, like teaching, and there. This is something that many people refused to do because, of course, because of the censorship and the control and the monitoring that is going on. I know a lot of people that they were highly educated, they had their PhDs, but they decided not to teach because they force you to 
you know, teach whatever they want and whatever you want. And um, yeah, those, uh, those people came to me, even those who were, who voted for reformists, you know, they told me, Nassim, that's, that's the reality. This is a reality and we're so proud of you for doing uh, this. And when I tell people that this is how I am being treated in the West, and when, I, when I'm saying West, I don't want people to think or perceive that I am talking about whites only. No, I'm talking about people of color also that are living in the West, and they sometimes, I don't know why, I'm actually trying to understand still, uh, they try to silence, you know, Iranian um, women, Afghan women, also Arab women who do not work with the state. Uh, so that's a very interesting phenomena that I think that a lot of people don't know about it or they know and they uh, keep being silent about it. I personally, I want to investigate this in a research or uh, in the format of a paper, something in the future. But yes, uh, that's why I came there. Uh, that's why I decided to study gender violence, uh, you know, uh, in genocide, in, in literature, in, uh, in, you know, in a sociological, from a sociological perspective, um, uh, because uh, I thought that, you know, that interdisciplinary uh, perspective would add a lot more to the, <laughs> to the scholarship that is biased about Iranian women uh, in the West. Thank you, Nassim John, for uh, raising the important topic of intellectual oppression, which goes alongside patriarchal, political, racial, and the other kind of oppression that women face. Uh, the Iranian government presents a particular view of women, which we, we see a lot um, in election campaigns, particularly like as the wives, daughters, and mothers of candidates. They are often used to reinforce the notion of the good Iranian woman. Can you tell us your thoughts on the women of the system, please, Nassim John? Definitely, yes. Uh, again, I go back to Boras John to answer this question. Uh, because when I think about Boras John, the Boras Jani women or women from Boucher in particular, I, I cannot explain it to people in Iran and in the West. Because there are <laughs> I mean, women are like from different kinds. They are, uh, they, they are religious women. They are secular women. They are uh, women who are not even interested in politics. There, there are women who are interested in politics, but they are not being included, unfortunately. And we know the you know, reason behind it. It's because because in the capital, there are a few women that are representing the Iranian, the good Iranian woman. And when you look at their, you know, uh, the, the, the knowledge that they are producing, whether they are, you know, in politics or in academia in the East and the West, we see that they're trying to introduce only the women who are, uh, who fit into their agendas. Actually, I had so many, you know, European friends who came to, to Iran and uh, they, they visited so many cities with me. I tried to show that, you know, Iranian women, they're not just what 
you know, you see in media or you know, because, you know, those women have influence on Western media, not ordinary people. When you see that, you know, they're always being presented in, for example, National Women's Studies Association in the United States. I My, my, my uh, abstract about marginalization of women in academia was actually rejected by NWSA. But then you see that uh, even the United States, even uh, those, you know, organizations that are advocating for human rights and for uh, women's rights, they actually try to uh, kind of remove Iranian women from the dialect, from the debates, from the discourses that are going on. National Women's Studies Association is not a joke. It's the biggest in the world and in the United States, which is the producer of knowledge. And uh, I mean, if I publish a, a uh, for example, an article in uh, Eastern Europe, nobody will read it. But if you publish in Canada, in the United States, the whole world will consume that. And we have no place in that as scholarship. You know, so uh, <laughs> I, I think it's the clan system here as well. <laughs> Maybe I should discover more about it. So uh, yes, women of system, they are very privileged. They are everywhere in the system in Iran and also in the West. It's only us, ordinary women, who are being marginalized in everything. Every piece of literature that is being produced by women who are talking about gender violence is being attacked uh, in the West. That What does that mean? That means that this group of people who decide to attack this piece of literature from Iran what they're doing. They're actually silencing the history and literature of women and, you know, a whole nation. So that war on literature is a war on Iranian nation. Thank you so much, Nassim John. It was our great pleasure to have you today with us and to hear your different, different and courageous uh, voice, which adds a different angle to the discourses around women and sexuality in Iran. Uh, it was our honor to have you with us. Thank you so much, Elham. Well, just one more point that I think it's very important. I hope that people who will listen to this, uh, they won't <laughs> accuse me of Orientalism. Because if they do, then I have my responses or they, they should not advocate, uh, you know, accuse me of advocating for war. That's not something nice. That's a traditional thing that is going on in the West and it should be ended. About, and because, because Iranian people and Iranian women know that what's going on in the world. It's not like 20 years ago. It, they should wake up. Thank you. You are listening to the Iran Election 1400 podcast in the Khobati Iran Hezara Charsad, brought to you by the Middle East Studies Forum at the Alfred Deakin Institute, Deakin University. That's all we have time for. Thank you, Elham. Thank you, James. It was my pleasure to talk to you, uh, Ali and Nasser, about Iranian election. Thank you, Nasser. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Ali. Thank you. 
Unless none of the candidates meet the 50% threshold and we have a runoff election, next week we'll, we will have our last podcast and we'll reflect on the result and delve a little bit deeper into the themes of the 2021 Iranian presidential election, asking where to for the Islamic Republic over the next few years. Thank you for listening to the Iran Election 1400 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at IranVotes1400. And don't forget to visit our website, www.mesf.org.au, for daily news and analysis, as well as information about candidates and upcoming events. Until next week, Khaili Mamnoon, Bakhodo Hafez. Hafez.